Good morning, good morning. Nice to see you guys. Uh, my name's Grant. I'm one of the pastors here at Harbour City. And if you're new, it's really nice to see you. I must say, during the community time, one of the things I really do enjoy is kind of looking around, just seeing who's in the room, seeing who's here, who's new, who's old, um, and just seeing people interacting and getting to know one another. Well, I mean old as in old-timers in the church. I don't mean like young people and old people. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But it is good to have you here today, and we are in a series at the moment called Knowing God, and what we're wanting to do as a church is we don't want to be a community of people that know about God, that have got great theology and know the Bible super well, but don't actually personally and experientially know God for ourselves. So we're wanting to spend a little bit of time cultivating and growing a relationship with Him where we get to know Him really, really well. That's what we're aiming for at the moment. And we're hoping that every week that you will leave here from our times together on Sundays, our life group times together midweek having learned something new, but also being given like a tool or something you can put into practice to learn and grow and develop your relationship with Him. And when I was thinking today or for today about some of the things that I've learned that have changed my life, you know, almost those moments where you learn how to do something new that you didn't know before, which have really changed your experience of life. What are those key and big moments for you? Thinking of myself learning to walk, it's a pretty big one, probably crawling first, kind of those like bum pushes along the carpet, then onto your knees and your hands, and then starting to walk around gives you so much freedom. And then as you go on, learning how to eat, learning how to cook for yourself, learning how to drive was a massive one for me. All of a sudden, you can be free. You're out there on the road, on your own, in your car, you can go anywhere you want, whenever you want. It's an amazing thing. Maybe you've got some other ones. I was thinking, learning how to woo and make a woman fall in love with you, you know? These are very important skills that we need to learn in life. But I thought maybe, maybe one of the most important ones for me was learning how to speak, how to talk, how to communicate. And I think for most of us in this room, we're at kind of the age where we feel, at least in our own normal language, that we would be able to communicate really freely, you know? So a time like this that Brendan just had, if you're an introvert, you might have hated the community time. You might think, oh, I really hate it when the church does that because it stretches me and it's out of my comfort zones. But you're fine. You know what to do. You know, someone comes up to you probably, or you go up to them and you say, hey, I am Grant. What is your name? They tell you their name. What do you do? And you're able to kind of run a bit of a uh, conversation and get to know them and find out more about them. And even if they throw some curveballs at you, you can kind of handle the uh, conversation well enough. And if it really starts to tank, you just go into the weather, talk about the humidity in Durban, you're fine. Like we're able to have that kind of conversation. We know how to do it. We've learned how to do this, but back in the day, this was hard for us, you know. When we were babies, we couldn't communicate with our parents at all. They couldn't communicate with us. We couldn't have a conversation. We just lay there and gurgled and cried and did what we did. But over time, we started to learn and grow, and we got better. And those gurgles became more pronounced and became sounds. And our parents got really, really excited about those sounds as they started to sound more and more like words. And then there was that moment where the first word came out of your mouth, and your parents took their phone or their camera or whatever and started to video you saying your new word, Zorb, or whatever it was. And they put it down in your baby book. This is your first word. They're so proud of you and over time like we got more words and we're able to speak more and communicate to the point we're at now and we're in this journey of learning how to grow and communicate and I, I, I probably am a bit of a proud uncle so I know I've used my nieces as preaching fodder over the last while but they are almost four and almost three um, and I've loved watching them learn how to speak and communicate. I remember Zoe, who's the older niece, when she was a newborn baby, Shell and I saw her, and she couldn't do much. She couldn't speak at all, but I remember one day teach, or getting her to laugh, 
She'd probably laughed a few times, but I found something. I think I was blowing a fan in her face or something like that, and I got her to giggle and laugh, and I felt like this was a breakthrough with this child, you know? We had like something going on. There was good interaction happening, and over time, I've watched Zoe and Tess learn to talk and communicate more and more as they've gotten older, and I remember we used to Skype them because they live in England, and my sister would say, say hello to Grantie and Shell. I'd be so excited, and they would look at Shell, and they'd say, Hello, Shell. And they'd look at me with this silent defiance in their faces, and they wouldn't say a thing. I think it's because of the G's and the N and the T in my name. G and N and T. But, um, but yeah, they just couldn't get it, you know. But they finally got in there. Granty is something that they can say now. And like now, over December, while they were here, I was watching Zoe, the older niece, start to boss Tessie around. She was able to tell her what to do and how to do it. And they would stand by the pool, and Zoe would say, this is how you jump in, Tessie, and would show her and give her the instructions. My sister sent through this video this week of Tessie telling the story of the three little pigs and also explaining how the wolf huffed and puffed and blew the house down with some of her own commentary on how the wolf could have done better. That was amazing. Like, this girl is processing, she's remembering, and she's able to speak now, you know? I don't know what she'll be like in a few years, but all of us are on a journey and a lifetime of uh, learning to communicate more. And kind of with people in this church, as they've started to prepare to get married, the probably big three things that you want to talk through are family, money, and communication. Shell and I have been married nearly six years now, six years in May, and communication is still something we're learning how to do better, you know? We're able to speak fine. We know body language is like one of the ways you communicate, but still somehow, even though we've known each other for so long, we know what each other are like, from time to time we completely miss each other, and we hurt each other, and we disappoint each other, because our communication and our understanding of each other is growing more and more. Communication is really important, and it's a lifelong process. And one of the things in our journey of knowing God that we need to grow in is communication with Him, which we call prayer. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and also in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives His disciples a bit of a how-to guide on praying. And in Luke 11, verse 1, it says this, Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And I was kind of trying to picture the scene. Jesus wanders off from his disciples, and he goes to pray somewhere, and all of his disciples play it really cool. They're like, okay, it's fine. Jesus is going to pray. But when he sits down and he closes his eyes, they follow him, and they hide behind a bush or a tree or a cave, wherever it was Jesus was, and they try and listen to hear him pray because they want to learn. You know, now these guys were Jewish people. They had a history of the faith. They would have been prayers. But it seems like even though they were probably praying two or three times a day, there was something about Jesus' prayer life which really struck them. And they wanted to learn from Jesus how to pray. They wanted a prayer class from Jesus. So when Jesus finally opens his eyes, says amen, finishes his prayer time, and he comes back, they kind of hide back at the place they were. And they say, Jesus, won't you teach us how to pray? There was something about his life that made them want a deeper prayer life. You know, it was almost like the babies we're talking about, the gurgling and the crying and learning to laugh. They were in the gurgling phase of prayer life and communication with God. And Jesus was fluent in multiple prayer languages and could have these amazing conversations with God. And they saw there was something different about him. They saw how Jesus lived from a place of prayer. 
They saw how Jesus started in prayer and made decisions from there. They saw how when Jesus was in a tough spot, he went to God first. He got God's wisdom and God's decision making. He got God's perspective on things. And then he went out and did what he was called to do. They watched Jesus' life and they thought, we want to be like that. We want to pray like that. We want a relationship with God like Jesus has got. But how do we get it? And when they come to him and they ask him for this masterclass in prayer, Jesus says, okay, let me show you how to pray. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers. I want you to think about this before we even get to it. What is the most repeated, memorized, spoken out passage of writing of all time? It's most probably the Lord's Prayer. Think over the last thousands of years, 2,000 years since Jesus was around, how people have memorized this prayer and prayed it out loud and said it in church gatherings like this and said it on their own as they were trying to spend time with God and how common and well-known it is. I don't know if I learned it at home or if I learned it going to church or I learned it going to school or in media or whatever it is, but I've been exposed to this prayer all of my life and you probably have too. It's such a well-known passage of writing. And I think for all of us, we're almost in danger in a sense, because this prayer of prayers is so well known to us, probably most of us in this room can quote it, that actually we can lose something of the beauty and the power of what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples when he gives it to them. So if you've got a Bible with you, can you turn to Matthew 6 verse 5, otherwise you can follow along on the screen with me, and we're going to take a bit of a look at Jesus' teaching on how to pray. Matthew 6 verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, as you read those words of Jesus, I don't know if you were to rank yourself on some kind of prayer maturity spectrum where you would be, somewhere near the top or somewhere near the bottom. But I found this and thought it was a really helpful guide for us in working out somewhere about where we are in prayer maturity. Peter Scazzera gives four stages of prayer maturity. And the first is talking at God. I think we've probably all done this before, and we've probably all experienced this before. When um, maybe you were learning to pray, you'd heard other people pray before, so you had some ideas of what prayer was meant to sound like. But when you first prayed out loud, you were kind of like a rookie, and you felt like a rookie. So you kind of strung together a few of these prayer phrases you'd heard, and that was your prayer, and you amened, and you were out of it, you know? Or I think I've seen this a lot in different movies. There's like a girl, and she starts dating this guy, and she takes this guy home to meet her parents, and she's told them all of these positive things about this guy, you know? He's this amazing spiritual guy, you know, he's just good at business, good at everything. So they sit around the table, and she's lied a little bit about his relationship with God, and they say, well, 
why don't you say grace? You know, you're a good Christian like us. And this poor guy who's probably never prayed a minute in his life, all of a sudden at the family dinner table needs to pray. And it's either one of those travesties where he, it's an absolute like train wreck, him trying to pray in front of this family, or he kind of summons some poem or something from his past, and he says that and then says amen at the end, and they just look shell-shocked at the table, not knowing what they've just experienced, and then they eat. That is kind of the talking at God immaturity of prayer. The second thing is talking to God. This is where maybe we go from that, I'm not sure what to say thing, to, okay, I'm just going to speak like I would to a friend, to anyone else. I'm just going to speak to God like that. And we start to share our dreams and our desires and our needs and our requests with God and ask Him to come and meet us there. The third stage in maturity is listening to God. This is where our times of prayer aren't just about the things we need and aren't just about us, but our prayer goes from this one-way conversation to actually a two-way back and forth. We're speaking to God and He is listening to us, and then God is speaking to us and we are listening to Him. And then the fourth and final stage in prayer maturity is being with God. This is the abiding prayer that Jesus speaks about in John chapter 15, where actually prayer goes from being an event or an activity that we do to a lifestyle. Prayer is who we are, you know. Throughout the day, we live in God's presence. We are aware of God. We're seeking God. We're speaking to God. We're listening for His voice. God is the one that we are living in and making our home in. Now, I don't know where Jesus' disciples would have fitted on that spectrum, and I don't know where you would fit today, but Jesus' disciples come to him and say, would you teach us to grow in prayer? And before Jesus gives them the prayer template of the Lord's Prayer, he gives them two prayer mistakes that a lot of people make. And the first is this, praying to be seen. The first is the hypocrite's mistake. And Jesus is speaking against people who really want to pray to be seen by others so that others will approve of them and think they're really spiritual. So I'm sure you've done this. I know I have, you know. You've been in a life group situation or you've been at a prayer meeting where someone asks you to pray out loud and you just zone out on what everyone else is praying and talking about and you just think, okay, what am I going to pray? Okay, what's a good topic? What's going to sound good? What's a good way that I can say it? Can I throw a scripture in there just to spice it up a bit? And you're like structuring this prayer in your head until it's your turn to speak and then you pray it and you kind of sit back and you feel, okay, I've done my job. You know, hoping you get a little pat on the back. Well done, Grant. Great prayer warrior. What a man. What a man. Just me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the first thing he warns us about. This is one of the ways that we use God for our own glory. We're using prayer to look good so that other people think we're great. And Jesus says, listen, if that's the way you're going to pray, that's your reward. You've already got it. The second type of prayer is praying empty words. Or this is the pagan's mistake, the Gentile's mistake. And what Jesus is speaking about here is a lot of the people who weren't part of the Jewish faith were serving gods that were quite capricious and inconsistent and up and down. So you weren't sure what you were going to get from them. You weren't sure what to expect. So what you would do to try and win over the gods was pray long prayers and use fancy language to impress them. I think some of us still do this today, you know. We think our endurance in prayer or using the right prayer language is going to impress God and then God will give us what we want. And again, we're using God to get something. We think if we show God that we're serious, we can twist his arm and get his blessing. And if we do that, we actually don't believe in grace. We believe actually we are earning God's blessing. We're earning answered prayer by what we do. Maybe you feel like you've been in that place. Jesus is speaking against mechanical, repetitive prayers where we just throw these phrases out and sprinkle them with Christian words like, 
bless or bestow or anoint or usher in God. And we say those things in prayer to think that we sound good and hope that God will be impressed. But really, that's not what God is about, you know. God is not going to bless you because you break some 10-minute or 30-minute or hour barrier. You know, you get to 60 minutes and then you get the jackpot in God and he will answer it all. That's what Jesus is saying. That is not how God works. This is not an earning thing. This is a grace thing. We're not coming before God to impress him. We're coming to put ourselves in his presence when we can experience him and hear from him and be changed by him and enjoy him for ourselves. And after Jesus almost gets these two prayer frustrations off of his chest, he shares this template or model of how we should pray to help us to grow. Now, I don't know your background, so maybe you grew up in a situation like this where you thought the Lord's Prayer was it, and every morning you would wake up and you'd say the Lord's Prayer, and before you went to bed, you would say the Lord's Prayer before you put your head down on the pillow. But that's not what Jesus is calling us for, to. He's giving us almost a model or structure of prayer that helps us to know God's priorities and God's heart and the thing that God wants us to focus on in prayer. In a sense, the Lord's Prayer is like prayer training wheels to get us going, you know. This will help you to pray. This will help you to know what to pray and how to direct your prayers. But in the Bible, there are a lot of other examples of prayer. So if you go to the book of Psalms, you can read tons of different prayers about different situations. And after Jesus gives this prayer, we see him pray a very different prayer in John 17. And throughout the book of Acts and the epistles and other parts of the New Testament, Luke and Paul and other writers show us other examples of prayer. Don't just pray this way. But the Lord's Prayer helps us to get praying. It shows us what God's priorities are and gives us priorities to focus on as we come to him and speak to him. And there is a very intentional structure to the Lord's Prayer. I think it almost challenges two thoughts that we often have about praying. The first is this, the prayer begins with us. And the second is that prayer begins with our desires. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, he starts and says, pray our Father in heaven. I think that's quite a big thing. Like, I don't know your upbringing and your background with the church, but I know there are a lot of people who, when they come to pray, think that they are coming to an angry king. No, they know God is powerful, they know God is in charge, but they don't think God is interested in their lives, and they really feel like, I'm, I'm kind of wasting God's time by coming to speak to Him. I think probably on the other end of the spectrum are people who feel like they're coming to a bit of a prayer genie, you know? You rub the prayer lamp, and God pops up, and He's there to grant our prayer wishes and to make us happy. Kind of that spectrum. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, He says, it's neither of those. You're coming to a heavenly Father. That's the one that you're coming to. That's who you're speaking to. And really in teaching us to pray this way, he's revealing God's will to us that God wants us to come to him. God is a loving father who wants a relationship with you and wants you to come to him in prayer. He's open-armed. He's inviting you. He's saying, come and be with me. And I think there's a massive idea here that we need to get for our discipleship to Jesus. And it's got to do with identity. I think probably in our generation and at this time, identity is one of the big things that we are fighting to understand, and particularly our identity in Christ. And I really want to encourage you, Harbor City, to fight for a right understanding of what it means to be in Christ, what your identity is in Him, what that means, and what is different about that from all of the other identities out there. And when Jesus gives us this prayer, He stamps this identity on us, which is, you are a beloved son or daughter of your Father in heaven who is the king. He says, don't let other things define how you see yourself and how you think of yourself because you are not your job. 
You are not your salary. You are not your success or failures. You are not your sexual desires. You are not the home you own or the kids you have or the place you live. You are not your race. You are not your nationality. You are not your gender. All of those make up something of who you are. But primarily in Christ, you're a son or daughter of God. And he is your father. And we need to see ourselves like Jesus sees us through those eyes and with those lenses because that changes everything about how we come to him. In Christ, we are a new people with a new family, a new identity, a new kingdom, and a new king. We have new priorities and new ways, and we are called into a new life. And Jesus says that daily we should pray this prayer, that actually we are reshaped and realigned to know these things and believe these things and live in light of them. The second thing that struck me here is that Jesus teaches us to pray our Father. And I've looked at that before and thought, well, that's great. You know, like at the end of today, maybe we'll pray this prayer together as a church. And then it's our Father. You know, us as the community of God's people, as Harbor City, we're praying it. It's our, plural, you know. I think that is really true. We should be praying together. So our Brenz is inviting us to a prayer meeting on Thursday. We want to pray together as the church. But as I looked at it with fresh eyes, I saw that Jesus is the one who is teaching us to pray this way. Jesus says, pray our Father. For the first time, it struck me in a sense, it's almost like Jesus is sharing God with us. Does that make sense? Like Jesus, who now in Christ is our older brother, is sharing God with us as Father, where before he wasn't, where before he was God, in Christ, through Jesus' life, through his death on the cross, through his sacrifice in his place, through his shed blood, through his forgiveness for us in him. Now we can approach God, and we have the privilege of calling him Father. Isn't that amazing? I, am, I have this embarrassing moment, which I've been told by people most of us in this room will have. So I remember being at school. Now, this wasn't in matric, and this wasn't in an assembly. This was in a classroom when I was young. But I raised my hand twice, two different occasions, and said to the teacher, can I go to the bathroom, please, mom? And then instantly, as you, say, you call the teacher mom, you want to die. And your friends are starting to giggle, and they're laughing, and then at break, they're like, how's your mom, eh, Grant? How's your mom? Yeah. And you just want to curl up into a ball and die because of how embarrassing that is to call someone by the wrong title. But what Jesus is saying to us here is that we don't have to feel shy or embarrassed about coming to God and calling him Father. It's like Jesus is saying, this is the truth. In him, you are, he is your father. You are his son or daughter, and this is what you get to call him now. Don't feel shy. Don't feel embarrassed. In Christ, we have the freedom and confidence to come to God in this way. It is uniquely and completely ours. Anyone else make that mistake at school? Callum, Shane. Okay, there's about six of you. The rest of you are horrible liars. <laughs> Secondly, Jesus says, hallowed be your name. It's such a weird word. You know, I really struggle to think about how to communicate this to us today because we don't use this word. And I can give you the theologian's term. To hello means to make holy. And you get in the car and you go to your friend, what does it mean to make holy God's name? Isn't his name holy already? So I was thinking of an example. I was uh, chatting to Callum the other day. We we're in the office together. And I started reading a book called Conversations with Myself. It's a collection of Nelson Mandela's writings. And I'm reading about this man who I would have loved to have met. I think, like, I feel sad in a way that I didn't get a chance before he died to just meet him, shake his hand, say thank you, or whatever, you know. And I bring this up with Callum, and he says, oh, I actually got to meet him when I was younger. And I've got a photo of the two of us together. I'm just thinking, yeah, Callum, that's really great. But this weekend, in a sense, and this year, we celebrate the 
100 year, the centenary of Nelson Mandela's birth, you know, this great man which played a huge role in the shaping of our nation. And in the book that I'm currently reading, Barack Obama is the one who writes the foreword and just talks about kind of following Mandela's story while he was in prison on Robben Island, getting to meet him, having phone calls with him, and just what a privilege that was. And I was thinking, if you were, like in many places around the world, to get up on a table in a public space and slander Nelson Mandela's name, I'm sure you would be booed, maybe beaten up, maybe even worse in some places, because he is a revered person. In a sense, his name is hallowed, and even more so God's name, you know? God's name is honored. It is glorious. It is worthy of worship. God is made holy by how we treat him, the centrality that we place of him in our lives, the unique space that we give to him. He is honored. And now the reality is one day, everyone in the world, our entire world will hallow God's name. But until that day, when many people don't hallow his name, when many people reject God's name or make fun of his name or blaspheme his name, we pray and we live in such a way that his name would be honored because of what we do and the lives that we have. Thirdly, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. And I was thinking about how there is a bit of an ache in this part of this prayer. You know, we think, well, God's name is not hallowed in Durban in many places, maybe even in some people in your lives, your family, your friends, your co-workers. His name isn't hallowed. He's not honored as king. His will isn't done. Actually, his will is like blatantly disobeyed. And we long for that day when things would change. And I was thinking about this. Um, I'm 32 now, getting super old. But I've always had this desire in myself to change the world. And I feel like a little bit embarrassed, like saying that, you know, like that, that sounds lame now. Grant, you're getting older, like let go of those childish dreams, you know, but it's true. I have a desire in me to change the world. I really do. And I remember in the youth days, it was easy, like Friday nights, get the youth pumped up, preach, come on guys, we're going to change the world. The youth's all cheering. Argh! Yeah, we're going to do it. And you get a bit older and you get a little bit more jaded and you think, oh, life is tough. I don't even know if I can change my socks. Like life is hard, you know. But I'm hoping, Harbor City, that we would be stirred by this part of the prayer. Your kingdom come and your will be done in my life, in this church, in this city, in our world as it is in heaven. Because this is a world-changing part of this prayer. This is where we are challenged again by our cynicism and our negativity and the way we get beat down by the world and some of the things that we face. And we are called again as we pray this to believe that God can change the world that God can change our situations, that God can change our city, that God can change the things that are getting us down, that God is a redeeming God. And actually faith rises in our hearts again, and we believe him for incredible and mighty things. Now, maybe none of us will ever be world famous. Maybe none of us will ever have that kind of influence. But what about local influence? I was just thinking, what if this week we prayed for our workplace, we prayed for our family, we prayed for our road, we prayed for our neighborhood, said, Lord, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done? We want to see you bring change to this space. And we prayed with faith and we prayed with passion. I think that would be a good use for our time. And one of the things that strikes me here is there is a lot of stuff that you and I can do to change Glenwood, Durban, South Africa, and the world. There's a lot we can do. But Jesus doesn't say, okay, guys, leave here and go and do it. And that is something we're called to do through our jobs and our lives, how we use our energy and our time. Jesus says, actually, lock yourself in your room and start the day praying that I would change the world. Are you joining God in what he's doing in the city and this world by your prayers, not just trusting in yourself and your ability, but trusting in God's power to bring profound change? The fourth thing, give us this day 
our daily bread. And really, daily bread does represent all of our needs, all of the things that we need on a day-to-day basis, and coming to God and asking Him for them. Now, I read this really profound quote by N.T. Wright that says this, The danger with the prayer for bread is we get there too soon. We come to prayer aware of urgent needs, or at least wants, and it's tempting to race through the Lord's Prayer as far as on earth as it is in heaven, so that we can then take a deep breath and say, Now look here. When it comes to daily bread, there are some things I simply must have. And then we go off into a shopping list. To do this, of course, is to let greed get in the way of grace. Isn't that quite profound? Prayer is not just about asking God to meet our needs and to change the situations we're in. Prayer is putting ourselves in God's presence in a place primarily that we can get to know Him and hear His voice and be changed by Him and empowered by him for what he has called us to do. And as I looked at this, I was struck by those words, this day and daily. You know, I, I am, I like to think about what's to come. I like to plan. I'm a futurist. I'm probably just a control freak. So I'm always thinking about what's coming up so I can like prepare and plan for it, you know. And it is so easy for me, and maybe you're in the same boat, to look at the weeks and months and years ahead and think about everything that's coming up and feel overwhelmed and pray out there for the future, you know. You've got a big smile on your face. I guess we're on the same page. Maybe there's a few of us in this room. But Jesus here isn't saying, listen, the future's bad. He's not saying don't pray for the future. But he comes to us and he says, that's fair. Don't be anxious about all of that stuff. Instead, daily as you start the day, come to me with your schedule and your calendar and your family and your needs and your stresses and the things you need wisdom for, the areas you need to make decisions, all of that stuff. Bring it before me and invite me into it, you know. That is what he's calling us to do there. Philippians 4 verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it goes on and says, The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a profound thing? Daily to come to him and invite him into these areas to fill us with peace and to calm our anxiety and to have his way in our lives. Guys, this is maybe like a challenging thing, but a lack of prayer doesn't come from busyness. I've known times where I've been super busy and I haven't prayed, and times where I've been super busy and I've prayed. I'm sure you do too. A lack of prayer doesn't come from busyness. It comes from pride and self-sufficiency. You know, sometimes I've been busy and I'm like, God, don't worry, I've got this, I don't need to pray, I'm in control. The times I pray when I'm busy are when I feel out of control. It's like, God, I need you to come in. I need your help because actually I don't have this. I think probably for a lot of us in this room, we have those days where we're like, this day looks pretty decent. Like, I think I've got this under control, stock standard Wednesday afternoon, I can handle this, you know. Some other days and weeks, we feel like we need to pray. So on the days and weeks that we think everything's fine, we say, God, don't worry, You have the week off. I'll call you in for the big stuff. And then when those big things happen, we get on our hands and knees and we cry out, God, would you come? The Lord's Prayer and living a life like this invites God into the big stuff, but it also invites God into the mundane, ordinary, everyday parts of our lives because that's where God wants to be. That level four stage of mature praying is when it's praying that is a lifestyle. We are living in Him. We are abiding in Him. have made our home in Him. Maybe one last bit of prayer encouragement. One writer says, There is no bad way to pray, and there is no one starting point for prayer. 
All the great spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer and you have to show up regularly. Fifthly, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. This is the part of the Lord's Prayer where we kind of bring our list of sins before God and we ask Him to forgive them. We repent, we turn from them, and we turn to Him as the one that we put our trust in for forgiveness. One preacher said, how often do we need to ask God for forgiveness? Well, how often do we need to take out the trash? I thought that was like quite a cool picture. You know, daily we go to God and we take out the trash. We take out all of the stuff and we give it over to Him and He disposes of it. He deals with it. And we need to do that. We trust in him for our forgiveness. But more than that, Jesus is teaching us here to also come when someone's hurt us and sinned against us and been mean to us or cruel to us. And we come to him and we ask him to forgive them or to help us to forgive them. And that's a big thing. This is us believing the gospel and applying the gospel in this situation. Because Jesus is saying there's an amazing correlation here between God's grace and forgiveness to us and the way we treat one another. You know, we come to him with the trash can. We say, Father, I've messed up in all of these ways. Would you forgive me and wash me clean? And then we look at what people have done to us and how they've treated us. We want to be angry. We want to hold on to it. And Jesus says, no, you've got to let it go. You've got to let it go. It's hypocrisy to expect grace and forgiveness from me, but not to show that same love and grace to other people. So that is what Jesus is calling us to. And I just thought, is there anything today that maybe you've been holding on to in your life that today you need to ask God to forgive? Today you need to just admit, I can't stay in this anymore. I need to repent. I need to turn. I need to be forgiven by God. And also, is there anyone that you are holding on to a grudge with there's some bitterness in your heart. There's some anger. And today God is like almost putting his finger on that thing and saying, would you forgive them? Would you let it go? The final thing Jesus tells us to pray is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Temptation and evil, our weakness and sin and Satan, the world and the flesh all around us and the challenges they bring to our lives. And that's the end of the prayer, just like a cliffhanger. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. I'm out. Mic drop, you know. So one of the things that they've done in church history over time is they added another line. Probably you're wondering where it is. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That was added somewhere down the line afterwards, not by Jesus. It's not out of line with Jesus' praying. It's just not something that he taught us. And it almost gives a nicer conclusion to the Lord's Prayer than just this cliff of, you know, temptation and Satan and evil and all of those things. But there's an interesting thing that Jesus does here is he's calling us to pray daily in this way. And he's really calling us to pray this way to the end of our lives. And he ends with temptation. The fact that we are weak, the fact that we sin, the fact that we need God's forgiveness, and really the fact that till the day we die daily, we're going to need to go to him and ask him to help us not to be tempted. And then he says also every day, Will you pray prayers of spiritual warfare? Satan, the enemy, is real, wanting to steal, kill, and destroy. The world around us, there are spiritual forces and powers which are behind the scenes in many things which are negative and want to influence and impact us. And even inside of ourselves, there is sin and temptation and wickedness at times. Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 7, I know what I should do, but I cannot do it. You know, There's something inside of us that we need God to put to death and transform. And that is how Jesus ends the prayer. He says that ache that we feel, that the world is not the way it should be, that we are not the way we should be, that we have an enemy out there, 
but there's a hope. Jesus ends this prayer with hope that Jesus is victorious over Satan. He's victorious over the world and he's victorious over our flesh. That Jesus has died and risen again. That we can have hope that even in the struggles that we face, he's already won. He has already conquered. He is already victorious. And we can end in hope. And for each of us, as we go through this prayer, the reality is you could probably pray this in under a minute. If you got good, maybe 15, 20 seconds you could fly through. But also, we could probably pray this through in a few hours. Those six points, and you could probably break it down further. We could spend 10, 15, 20 minutes on each one of these, praying and pouring our hearts out before God and asking Him to bring change to us. And really the big idea here is that these priorities of God would become the priorities of our lives and the priorities of our praying, and that they would influence how we pray and how we live and shape us into a different kind of person. So Harbor City, this week, can we pray the Lord's Prayer? Can we think about it? Can we pray it through? Can we ask God to help us in these areas? And I just thought of three practical steps maybe we could take. The first is just get up a little bit earlier, Read this through tomorrow and ask God to hear your prayer. The second is, as Brendan advertised, come and pray with us this Thursday night from 6 to 7. If you are a prayer rookie, this is a great opportunity to hear other people pray out loud and to learn to pray yourself. I'm pretty sure the Lord's Prayer will pop up on Thursday. And thirdly, we pray on Sunday mornings at 9.20 before our service. If you want to come and pray for us, for what happens here, if you want to pray for things external to this church, and make time to hear what God is saying to us. We'd love you to come and join us. We meet in one of those rooms at the back there that we can grow and stretch our prayer muscles as a church. Can we stand together? We're going to sing one more song just to end. But I wanted to ask, uh, Damien, could you put the Lord's Prayer just up on the screen for us? I thought, will you take a look at that? Or maybe as I've spoken today, there's something that has stood out to you. Can we take two minutes now just to think of that point that maybe God is highlighting to you and respond to God personally by praying it out? Maybe for you today, it's actually the sin. Like you've got sin you need to repent of, or you've got someone you need to forgive, or God has stirred you to change the world and to influence others. Or maybe today it's just the fact that God is Father. God is Father. And that identity piece that in Christ you're a son or daughter is something you need to accept. So can we just take a minute? I'll pray for us, and then you can pray. Lord, just as we look at this prayer, Holy Spirit, I welcome you in this space. I pray that you would come upon us. I pray that you would hear our prayers. And I pray that you would help us to respond to you, Lord. We need you, and we invite you in. Amen.